Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. We pray that this message is a blessing. The verse I'm reading today is Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 15. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was ignited. (laughs) Indignant. He said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Thank you, Layla. I am going to struggle to preach after so much fun. Hey, can I just commend you all? Thank you for leaning in there. Uh, And the afternoon's not over. And also, this won't be the only time we seek to find ways in a very beautiful tapestry of grace to celebrate young people in our midst. And so every opportunity that comes along where we get to celebrate young people and champion generations in our church, what would it look like for us to forego our sort of creature comforts in worship with our eyes closed and our hands raised just to dance and raise the roof off this place? So thank you. Can we just encourage particularly Zoe and Crispian and her team for just leading that space for us? such a blessing, so thanks guys. Um, I remember when I first read this passage, um, I remember thinking, what does it mean? Like, is Jesus commending us to sort of like take a few steps back in our maturity in order for us to progress in the Christian life? And a line that I found really helpful just in opening up this text, just to sort of give frame to our time here, is just this beautiful sense that when God invites us to follow Him, He doesn't ask us to become childish. He asks us to become childlike. And the question I want to ask this afternoon is why? And I want to pull out two virtues that I think Jesus invites us to have as markers of the Christian life as we follow Him and apprentice after Him. But before I pull out those virtues, I just want to make one note. And the note's this. I was looking, I was looking at the text a bit earlier this week, and there's this line that describes Jesus' response to the, the, the disciples and their response to the kids. So here's what happens. And this is not usually how I start a sermon, by the way, so just, like, just go with me on this one. But here's what happens. Jesus is getting a lot more fame in and around Galilee, and a whole host of people start to know who He is and expect His coming and sort of anticipate Him by crowds and people hoarding and flocking to Him. And in this particular scene, there's a bunch of parents who bring their kids to Jesus. And the response of the disciples in a Greco-Roman antiquity sort of culture is to say, kids are worthless, they're not worth your time, so don't worry about blessing them, let's get on with the real stuff of dealing with the adults. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but there's a word that captures Jesus' response, and and Layla read it helpfully for us, it's the word indignant. Now, if you go to the original Greek and you look at that word, the word is like, the word is Agoneteo, Agoneteo, I think it is. You're not going to remember this. I'm not either, so you're in good company. But that word is used, it's actually quite a visceral word. That word is used to describe wine fermenting. It's kind of like picture bubbling red liquid within Jesus at the response of His disciples saying, 
oh, you've got better things to do than bless children. And the image that comes to my mind is actually the image of blood boiling within Jesus in response to the disciples who just don't get it, in response to them going, you've got better things to do with your time, what's more important is the adults in the room, and actually it's not going to be really effective if you do anything with these kids anyway, so let's just go on with your ministry to the more mature people. And the response of Jesus is a special kind of anger to that in the Gospels. And I just think, what a beautiful text to frame our time as we think about not just what God might say to us, but how He might speak to the young ones in our midst. Because, I don't know about you, but I find it so easy to disqualify how a young person might experience God. But if you read the Scriptures, they are replete with example after example of young people doing incredible things for God because they experience Him and want the world to experience Him too. I'll just give you two examples. I don't know if you know this, but King Josiah, the guy who brought the reforms to the Old Testament Israelites, King Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Now, I don't recommend it, it's not a good PR, like, sort of solution. But he was the guy through whom God brought reform to his people in the Old Testament. But he was eight when he became king. Or you think of Daniel and his friends in the lion's den, in the prophet Daniel, it's sort of towards the back end of the Old Testament. The story there is of teenagers who, with integrity, before a, a, a Babylonian nation, a war nation, sort of just say, no, we will pray and contend for God. And what God does in the lives of young people in the Scriptures, I think He would give us faith that He might do it again in our time. I know myself, I came to faith at the age of 15. I know that Sir Isaac Watts, one of the great hymn writers, came to faith at the age of nine. The stories in the Bible and in history of young people encountering God and having their life transformed and turned upside down, not just for their good, His glory and the place that He's called them to, is profound. And so I just say, goodness me, if you've got a young person in your life, or you are passionate about young people here in this church, you would find good resonance with the narrative arc of the Bible, which says this, that there is no disqualification for anyone as they would come to meet Jesus. Not age, not background, not culture, not context, not story, not parents, no, like nothing would disqualify or hinder kids coming to Jesus. And he says so it himself, and the word he gives us is sort of this bubbling, fermenting wine in face of his disciples who go, oh, you've got better things to do, Jesus. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Let me pray, and we'll look at two virtues in the life of a Christian. Father, thank you so much that we here, regardless of age, actually just call ourselves children of God. And we ask, Father, that as we come to your word now, we would experience not walking backwards in immaturity, but walking forwards in maturity as we look back at our younger brothers and sisters. Speak to us now as we come to your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Awesome, friends. Two virtues, here they are. Virtue number one, increased wonder. Virtue number two, non-negotiable, non-negotiable dependence. Increased wonder and non-negotiable Dependence. Here's the argument of Jesus, the big idea that gives us reason to explore these virtues. The big idea is that there is a possibility that children have more to teach us about Christian maturity than we first imagined. There is a possibility that children have more to teach us about Christian maturity than we first imagined. And the first virtue I want to pull out in the life of a young person is increased wonder. I think right now, and forgive me for this language, but I think we've got a wonder deficit in our cultural moments. Does anyone feel this? A wonder deficit. What do I mean? 
I think this is evidenced in the way that our world is somewhat disenchanted. Now, there's a cultural and academic thread here. I'll go, I'll go quick on that one. And there's also just like a distraction sort of social thread here. The cultural and academic thread is this. Uh, in the 20th century, there's a bunch of thinkers that got together and put forward what they call the secularization thesis. And the basic idea was this, that as society progresses in academia, uh, in technology, in progress, in science, in medicine, in infrastructure, then gradually all the enclaves within which we had rational belief in God would start to disappear and the world would become more secular. There was more secular voices that began to be published in universities from around the 1600s onwards and so on and so forth until we find ourselves in our modern cultural moment and we'd call Australia sort of a secular country. And secularism is less about a set of beliefs and more just a way of being in the world and a way of being which just says this, that this material world is all there is there's nothing more than meets the eye. Naturalism, materialism. That's the cultural academic thread. We live in a secular world. And if you're a Christian, you run the risk of becoming what you might call a functional atheist upon, along the way. I feel this all the time. I wake up, go about my day as if God's just an idea but not a real person. Go about my week not praying as much as I'd like to and just functioning in sort of the horizontal plane of life so easy not to live in a secular world and become a functional atheist along the way. And in that space, you lose sight of wonder. In that space, you don't let your imagination run wild. In that space, you lose sight of hope and optimism that this world is not all there is. There could possibly be more. That's the academic and the cultural thread. But the social and the more uh, social thread is um, sort of captured in the title of a book written in the sort of 1990s by a guy named Neil Postman. I'll give you the title of the book. It says it all distracting ourselves, sorry, amusing ourselves to death. And at the back end of the 20th century, Neil Postman was looking at all the ways in which we spend our time watching TV, and the accounts and the numbers there are staggering, absolutely wild. And he would put forward the case that, and he wouldn't say this, but thinkers after him would argue, it's not so much that we disbelieve in God because we've heard the right argument and had our faith tremble, it's that we've distracted ourselves from any interior life whatsoever, and so we never sit long enough to think deep enough about why we're here, where we're going, and whether it all matters at all. And in that space, of course we have a one deficit. Here's the other way that I think that this is revealing itself in our culture, and we'll jump to the scriptures in a moment, but I think our culture has traded wonder for nostalgia and novelty. What do I mean? Um, have you ever noticed recently how there's a bunch of adults doing really childlike things? I'll give you some examples. Um, I was chatting with some crew about this this week, but I was chatting with one of our youth leaders. They will remain unnamed. And I said, mate, how was your week? And he or she was like, oh, it was awesome. I went to a Pokemon uh, game sort of like card trading night. I was like, oh, I remember doing that when I was eight. <laughs> and I was like, what, what was it like? And they were like, this was, it was awesome. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. How good. You're jumping into your nostalgic, childlike fad. How, how incredibly, how exciting. This is happening, right? Or if you're like me, you'll be getting Facebook ads at the moment. I don't know if you've received this, and this just tells you way too much about my algorithm, which tells you way too much about me. But there was an ad that came through on Facebook recently that said, um, inflatable playground coming to Brisbane, adults only, meaning like you have to be over a certain age, not that it's going to be a particular kind of playground. And had to say it, it was now more weird, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Pray for me. Um, 
but it was literally like a big jumping castle. And they were like, it was targeted to me. Facebook knows my age. And it's trying to invite me into like somewhat childish things. Uh, or in the area that I live, there's a sort of playground called Area 51. And on the last Friday night of every single month, they've got adults only night. And it's literally a jungle gym. And so all the kids have to vacate the space and the adults come in. And there's just, a, imagine a bunch of grown adults sitting in a ball pit going, we're living our best life. How good's Friday? Happy Friday. And I think what we've done, the last example I'd give would be this. In 2006, there was a guy named Christopher Noxon. He's a sociologist, and he wrote a book called Rejuvenile. And he was noting how in America, and in the West more broadly, people, because they don't have wonder, hope, anything transcendent in life, they're now finding escape and distraction and fun in things that are actually kind of juvenile. And he called it the rejuvenile, someone who goes back in the way they experience fun. Now, is it wrong? Absolutely not. But what does it say? Well, it says, I think what it says is that we've got a wonder deficit in our culture. Because here's what I think. Nostalgia and novelty are a secular version of wonder. This is what I think. Now, I might be wrong, but just go with me on it. Because wonder, and there'll be a quote behind me on the screen, wonder is, novelty is the fun of looking at something fresh. But wonder, wonder is the habit of looking afresh at something with curiosity, possibility, and hope. And here's my question for us as we look at young people who are wide-eyed, looking at the world as if for the first time as they grow up. When was the last time you had wonder? When was the last time you looked at the world with possibility? When was the last time you looked at the world with hope and optimism? Because here's what I find easy to do. I find it really easy just to be a cynic and a pessimist. And I felt the Spirit come into my life recently and say, Alex, pessimism is not a fruit of the Spirit. And Christians are the kind of people to be marked by joy, marked by hope, marked by wonder. Why do I think this? Well, verse 14, Jesus says it like this, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He invites us to look at young people, and children in particular, and I think there's a particular kind of child he has in mind, and meditate. What is it about children? Because the passage doesn't really answer it with like a one, two, three, five step, sort of here's the 10 things you need to take away. It just holds up this young person and asks you to meditate. Don't you hate that about Scripture? Sometimes I want the Scriptures just to be this nice little, I've got these 10 questions, where are my 10 answers? But actually, sometimes Jesus will give you a parable, which makes you ask more questions rather than gives you answers. Or he'll give you an image of something which makes you meditate and like the facet of a diamond, see through one angle and then through another angle and take away this beautiful truth that only he by the Spirit can speak to you. I think it's because of their wonder that they see the world with fresh eyes because indeed what they're experiencing is fresh. Wonder is a virtue inherent to young people, inherent to children. I used to love wash-up time when I was a kid. We didn't have a dishwasher. We weren't that fancy. If you did, I'm judging you. But when I was tasked with washing up, I would take an hour and we had our dinner on a barbecue. So what took me so long? I remember standing at the sink and just seeing the way that water would drop between vessels. And I loved it. Or I remember getting served mashed potato. Anyone do these ones when they were a young kid? Slash, feel free to say you do it now. It's, it's fine if you do. Serve mashed potato, and you build a volcano with that thing. Anyone? 
Any brothers and sisters in the room? Yeah, right on. Now we're talking. Now, every volcano needs lava, and so what do you do with the middle of the volcano? I heard multiple things. I'm going to pretend I heard tomato sauce. <laughs> Bang. Just flowing. But I was just enamored with this. And here's what I think Jesus is inviting us to consider. To become childlike is to humble yourself before the wonder of the world, to hope again, to think it's possible that this is not all there is. Now, the, another way to look at this is actually through the writings of C.S. Lewis. You knew I was going to go there. Here we are. And in the Narnia novels, something that Lewis does is he always portrays immature characters as adult-like children and mature characters as childlike adults. And so you get in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, the story of Professor Kirk, who's deeply rational, incredibly logical. But Edmund, Peter, and Lucy, and Susan come to him, and they're saying, and you know the story, right? They say, Professor Kirk, our sister Lucy has made up this tattletale of a, another world, that's contained within a wardrobe that's contained in this house. And Professor Kirk stares back at them and says, with utter logic, radical rationality, well, I know it's a stretch imaginatively, but does Lucy normally lie? Well, no, Professor Kirk, she doesn't normally lie. Is it possible that this world is, that we see is not all there is? Well, yeah, it's possible that this world that we see is not all there is. Deeply logical, radically rational. And he says, well, it's most probable that there's another world contained in a cupboard within this house. What the heck are they teaching kids in school at the moment? What is Professor Kirk doing? With utter logic and radical rationality, he is positing that this world that we see is not all there is. Why? Because he's filled with optimism, hope, and wonder. But compare that with Eustace. Remember the voyage of the dawn treader? Eustace is sort of like a what we might call an adult-like child. He's full of knowledge, but devoid of wonder. He's dreary, he's secular, he's cynical. He looks at the world and the knowledge he likes is the kind of stuff contained in textbooks. But he doesn't want to be out. Like he, He's famous for having a painting in his bedroom on the wall, and it's a painting of a ship on the sea. And he loves the idea, the idea, get that, that we could go on a voyage. But then that painting comes to life and pulls him into the depths of the sea. And when he finds himself on the boat, all he does is complain, antagonize, and hurl stones, and doesn't make friends, and doesn't imagine the beauty of it. What's he doing? Well, he's full of drear, unimaginative. He is a childlike, sorry, an adult-like child. Here's my question. Wouldn't it be cool if God could restore our wonder to us, our childlike adulthood. There's a quote from N.D. Wilson. Let me read it to you in full. It's fascinating. Get these words. God is a God of galaxies, of storms, of roaring seas and boiling thunder, but he's also the God of bread baking, of a child's smile, of dust motes in the sun. He is who he is and always shall be. Look around you now. He's speaking always and everywhere. His personality can be seen and known and leaned upon. The sun is belching flares while mountains scrape our sky, while ants are milking aphids on their colonial leaves, and dolphins are laughing in the surf, and wheat is rippling, and wind is whipping, and a boy is looking to the, into the eyes of a girl, and mortals are dying. Do you see this? Shakespeare put it like this. You'll see it on the screen behind me. This life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, brooks in books in running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in 
everything. Do you see it? What would it take to see it? It'd be to have your wonder restored, to look out at the world, the beauty of it, the brokenness of it, the triumph of it, the tragedy of it, and say there could be more to life than this, and maybe the more is God himself revealed to us in Christ. Do you want your wonder back? Just a practical takeaway as you walk into the week. Go watch a sunset this week. Wake up early enough to see the sunrise. Make a coffee early enough that the wisps sort of fly off the cup and into the ether as they vaporize out. And let that be the thing which doesn't just fascinate you with the created, but lets you trace your mind and heart back up to the creator who made you to see him through all that he's done in this world. What would that look like for you? I think our world rejects God, not because we've sat in the room and concluded philosophically, maybe he's not real. I think we're just distracting ourselves into oblivion. What would it look like if the people of God were the most reflective, wonder-filled, optimistic, hope-filled, engages of creation in and through that as they meet with God. We need to have our wonder increased. And lastly, we need a non-negotiable dependence. As I unpack this last one, I'd love to invite the band up. I actually love that there's kids' voices in the background behind me. We doing okay. We're sort of probably half hearing my sermon, half hearing children. And I wouldn't have it any other way. We need a non-negotiable dependence. The passage says this, verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in his own translation in the message. He says it like this, don't push these children away. Don't ever get between them and me. These children are at the very center in the life of the kingdom. Mark this, unless you accept God's kingdom in the simplicity of a child, you'll never get in. What's he saying? I want to zoom in on that word receive there and see what it might mean for us in our lives right now. In the ancient world, children were worthless. They were discardable. One of the common practice of the Roman Empire was what you might call infanticide. If you had a child you didn't want, typically a female, you'd leave it out either to die or be taken up by actually benevolent uh, individuals. Christians ended up becoming those kinds of people that would rescue children from the doorstep of Roman homes. But they were discardable. And in fact, they'd be seen as able to be objectified for the purpose of work or that kind of thing. But they weren't seen as having any inherent dignity or worth or value themselves. In this particular passage, the word that the gospel writer uses for infant is actually not like a teenager or a toddler, but actually a baby. And so you've got this picture of parents, beautiful, heart-postured parents, hearing that this rock star rabbi from Nazareth is now in town. And they're saying, if I just get my child to him, he could bless them. And so one broken mother stumbles up with their baby in her hands and tries to give it to Jesus. Another father comes along with his daughter and tries to give it to Jesus. And Jesus, without a wink, receives the infant, the baby, and he holds it up. And the image that comes to my mind is Mufasa, but I'm probably wrong, you know, in Lion King. And he holds it up and he says, unless you become like one of these. Now, this is different, right? It's not a little cute kid that he's holding by the hand walking. Into his lap, he pulls someone who's helpless in the eyes of the state, expendable, 
whose future, deeply uncertain, whose worth, completely contestable. And I think what he's showing us is actually that a mark of maturity in the Christian life is to think of ourselves in the same way. Maybe not that word worthless, but helpless. Future, uncertain. One of the ways we celebrate maturity in our modern world is to say that the older you get, the more independent you should become. And I think on one level that's helpful. We call it stewardship in the Christian world. Do something with your life. It's gonna be okay, but like, God's given you gifts, use them. But one thing the Christian life never envisioned for each of us is independence from God. In fact, it would say if you think you can be independent from God, you're believing the biggest myth, the worst fable, the craziest fiction. It's the biggest illusion that we would ever be independent from God. I love how the Oxford English Dictionary defines dependence. It says dependence, it's not a cute term, doesn't say those words, that's me, but it's, quote, the state of needing the help and support of somebody slash something in order to survive. So often I find it really easy to think about progress in the Christian life as an exercise in me sorting myself out, as an experience of me just picking myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and plugging in this discipline here or reading this particular book over here or praying this prayer there or getting into that kind of helpful discipleship relationship. And although that's helpful, the illusion I could be believing is that this whole Christian life's completely dependent not on God, but on me. And when that becomes my life source, then I rob my Christian journey of joy and I actually rob it of progress. But the Christian life was always meant to be one lived in proximity and dependence upon God. Why? Well, because on a human level, we're completely dependent on God for our every single breath. All the more so for our journey with Jesus by the Spirit. And so what would it look like for us to become dependent again? You know, as I was praying about how this might land in our lives and I've shared a number of things. I've zoomed in on some things and I've missed some things out, but I was praying about, Lord, how, how, would, you, like, how would you outwork dependence in our life as Christians at New Life Brisbane? And I felt like he took me to a book that I read a few years ago by a guy named Pete Gregg, the founder of 24-7 Prayer. And in that book, it's called How to Pray, A Guide for Humans, which is really helpful because, man, I'm a human and I'm a broken one too. I need help. But he notes there that the Latin term for prayer is precario. Ring a bell? It's the word from which we get precarious. And he makes the point there that we pray because life is precarious. We're so good in the modern West of insulating ourselves from all the problems, all the anxieties. We use Excel spreadsheets for our budget. We've got a reading plan for our Bible. We've got money in the bank for how we save for the future. We've got family and friends nearby if we ever need a safety net. We've got incredible healthcare in our country, something to be celebrated. Incredible social welfare, something to be championed. But goodness me, when I think about all that that makes possible, it's this. I could live my life with the illusion that I'm an independent grown man and nothing would do more damage to my relationship with God because I'm dependent upon Him for my breath 
I'm dependent upon Him for my life, and I'm sure as heck dependent upon Him for my own relationship with God every single day. And so here's my question for us as we close. What would it look like to restore wonder into our hearts? What would it look like to restore a non-negotiable dependence on God? And I actually think it kind of begins with prayer. Now, I didn't get that from this text. I was just praying about it. But I think it begins with prayer. I'm a really practical person. I don't like ethereal ideas. I wanna know, so what's that mean for my Monday? And I just wanna give us this challenge. Midway through the back half of the year, Friends, what does prayer look like in your life right now? When was the last time you got on your knees before God? Because when you're on your knees before God, you take your mind to the heights of Him, which is wonderful. But you also bear your heart to Him, which is absolute non-negotiable dependence. In prayer, we become childlike again before our Heavenly Father. In prayer, we become dependent again upon Him in a way that we've always have been, but it just reveals to us afresh what's really true about the world. And so I wanna just finish by inviting us to think about our prayer life and perhaps responding in prayer. So why don't you stand? And just as you stand, let me ask that question one more time and see it not as a guilt trip, See it not as shame-bearing. See it as an invitation to restore the wonder for which God made you and the dependence which has always been true about you in the first place. What does prayer look like in your life right now? How are you dependent upon God for your every need? There are so many needs in our community. How are you dependent upon Him? Do you feel like you are being dependent on Him? Would you like to be dependent upon Him? Come to Him in prayer. How are you chasing wonder in this life right now? Not as an end in itself, but actually as a byproduct of us seeing Him afresh for the first time again. How are you chasing wonder? Being hope-filled, optimistic, not cynical or downcast about this world and our place in it. Come to God in prayer. As you come to God in prayer, you ascend the heights of who He is despite the depths of who you are and He's available to you. You get to talk with Him. So why don't you close your eyes right now. I'm gonna lead us in prayer. But even as the worship just begins to start, we're gonna have a prayer team on my left, your right. Uh, There'll be one or two people there with white lanyards. And if you would just like to do business with God, just come and receive prayer. It's a beautiful thing God's been doing in our midst for the last few months. And I just say, let's add fuel to that fire. If you would like to come and just humbly respond on your knees and show God just this surrender. God, I surrender and I just declare with my body right now that I am dependent upon you for everything. Then just come, come and just get on your knees with Him. But for all of us, what would it look like to model worship to our young people? Again, not as an end in itself, but as a beautiful byproduct of us just encountering and experiencing our Heavenly Father right now. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you're here, that you wanna meet with us, that we get to meet with you, that we do so right now through prayer. And I just pray, Lord, whatever you've put on each of our hearts, and I know you've put something, 
Help us respond to you faithfully now, tomorrow, next week, so that, Father, we might become childlike again in our faith, restored to wonder, remembering our dependence, all as we seek you and are known by you. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Friends, let's respond in worship. Let's respond in prayer. Let's sing together. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can contact us at church.nu or through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.